you know, we all know there's a writer back there somewhere. And it's, it's not modesty to pretend otherwise. It's, you know, it's sort of falsehood to pretend otherwise. We should own up to our specificity without making that a front and center aspect of our writing. to Drawing Your Own Path podcast. We're here in the middle of October 2017. I started with a little clip of Nancy Prinsenthal, our guest today, and her wise words about writing, and followed that with a little piano riff by Olive Mason playing my favorite On the Sunny Side of the Street. It was recorded in 1949. I found that little clip on archive.org, and I tried to find out more about Olive Mason. Not a lot is known. She had three recording sessions with Rondo Records there in the late 40s and early 50s. And at one point she was known as the First Lady of Swing, and you can really hear it at the end of that first solo. I encourage you to go and look up her playing. She was wonderful. The 78 that it's recorded from is a little scratchy, but I think it adds to the atmosphere of the recording. She was a pioneer. Today we're going to hear about another pioneer in the painting world, someone who did it her way, Agnes Martin. And there's a certain mystique around Agnes Martin amongst meditation practitioners because she speaks in her interviews about her process, about painting, and it really sounds like meditation. And so um, we're going to speak with her biographer, Nancy Prinsenthal, and she does a wonderful job of documenting Agnes and understanding her life. She spent many years uh, thinking about her work and seeing her work. And also we delve into Nancy Prinsenthal's own writing herself, her own writing process, and her own thoughts about creativity. So I think it makes a wonderful interview, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, there's a few things you can do to support it that won't cost you a dime. One thing you can do is go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. That'll really increase our visibility. And if you've enjoyed uh, my book, Drawing Your Own Path, you could go to Amazon and uh, give, us a, give us a big review there. That also helps with visibility. There's also a Facebook group called Drawing Your Own Path. And I'm on Instagram at Drawing Your Own Path. So try to find a place to join in if you're interested. We have a Tuesday night drawing bee every Tuesday at 9 o'clock Eastern. We gather together over a video chat to draw together many ways to get involved with this growing community of creative contemplatives. Thank you, yes. first of all. Well, I'm, um, I'm happy to be participating. Thank you for sending the book. Um, now I know uh, a little bit of what you've been up to in more recent years, and I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm going to try some of those exercises myself. Oh, great. So. Oh, great. Yeah, they're fun. It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. I was, it was lucky. I mean, I'd been doing the practice for a long time, and then there was this sort of turning point when it became apparent that that was really the work, you know, and, uh -huh. and, and, and it was an inward focus, which is sort of how I got where I am now with, uh, yeah. with the interview and such. With you is that I just got very curious about where the creativity was coming from. What the source of the creativity was, and that and that opens up to a much larger source eventually. So, sure does. Um, yeah. Yeah. Deep and un and and sort of fathomless exactly. questions. Yes. So you want to start with um with Agnes Martin, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just I'll just say we're speaking today with Nancy Prinsenthal, uh, who I've known for a long time, and um, full disclosure, did a review of my work way back in two thousand seven. Uh, and was uh, a great review and uh, read the work very closely and had some really great things to say about it. So I hope I can do her the same favor by reading her book closely and 
and getting to talk about it. So welcome today, Nancy. Thank you, and thanks for that nice introduction. Um, it was such a such a pleasure, and and really um, such an act of instruction to me to see that work, especially at that time. I felt like you know a whole new world was being opened up to me. I'm um, I'm not especially friendly to technology, and I felt like oh here's somebody who's holding their hand out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried for a long time. I've moved away more now from the software art, but um, I know you know, have. It was, but it, ten, it was a door opener for me. Ten, was, ten years of it or more was it was a good a good time. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, yeah. So uh, Nancy uh, published about two years ago a wonderful book uh, called Agnes Martin: Her Life and Art. And uh, I just I recommend that if you like Agnes Martin or you like art or you like meditation, go out and get a copy of this book. It's uh, it's amazing for for a bio and for a book uh, with so much fact. It's really great to read. It's a beautifully smooth read and uh, great stories. And I was just so into it. And I was especially into uh, this chapter four, as I told you, uh, <laughs> the lines of thought chapter. And um, because I'm working now and in this podcast talking about contemplative studies and creativity and looking at the boundaries between the two, Agnes Martin is kind of a... a has a has like a great status, a mythical status amongst uh, artists and amongst meditators because um, you know what she says is really at the heart of it, really at the heart of uh, what goes on in meditation. And so I really wanted to try to pick out uh, those connections, and I really wanted to see. I went my bias in going into reading the book was to really see uh, some justification and to see how much into meditation she was, mm -hmm. and you know, it's kind of surprised and in a pleasant way, kind of surprised with. Uh, the fact that she knew about it and uh, she was influenced by it, but it wasn't her identity, and I think that was a really yeah. interesting thing. You know, it's um, it's funny when I when I first set out on the Agnes Martin Trail, um, I discovered just how wide a circle of fans she had and how diverse, and that it was her perceived persona as much as her work, I think, in many ways that attracted all these followers. Um, I met a young woman who was um, writing about her work in Germany um, and had gone so far as to try and research what yoga studios were available to Agnes when she was in New York in the in the early 40s and then in the um, mid 50s and then again for a decade between 57 and 67 and to see whether she could confirm that um, Agnes had participated in yoga and meditation sessions, um, which I think she ultimately was not able to do, but I was just fascinated at the commitment um, to, to confirming her involvement. And I think it was um, both enormously important to her and very unorthodox. Uh, you know, I don't think she was ever actually a student in any organized way of any form of meditation or Buddhist philosophy. Um, it just really, um, I think it really connected with the way her mind works, which worked, which was, of course, really distinctive, unique, um, and um, it also deeply affected the way she wrote, which she did, you know, with some commitment at various points in her life. Her writing, I think, has also, especially for students, uh, been almost as important as, uh, again, as, you know, actually being face-to-face -face with her work, which I think is the experience without which none of it makes any sense. I, I do have to say that, you know, her reputation as sort of a sage of the desert, and she could sit so still that, you know, birds would alight on her shoulders. That was one story I had heard, um, are somewhat apocryphal. Uh, you know, she was a, a deeply um, complicated, mixed up person. And um, I think, like so many of us, um, she found the pursuit of um, what we now generally, I think, called mindfulness um, was just immensely important. And she took it in any way she found it. And I think uh, in some ways, uh, by um, not identifying with the practice and becoming involved in the practice, she exemplified the practice in the way <laughs> that Zen works, that 
That right. it, they talk about the finger pointing at the moon, you know, don't look at the hand when you're looking at the teaching, you know, you have to go and experience it in the way that you describe that you have to go and experience the paintings, you have to be part of them. Uh, yeah, in a way, not uh, being caught up in the teachings of Zen, for instance, she really was Zen, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which makes it harder to let go of her as a sage. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So, so, so it, it, it kind of feeds back on itself. I think that's a really interesting property. Yeah. And she wasn't, you know, she was by no means ignorant of um, some of the Zen teachings and um, some of the practices. And even at the end of her life, she said, yeah, yeah, you know, I try and meditate every day. Um, She did say different things to different people. So it's hard to get a consistent um, picture. So in some ways, uh, you know, her work, her work. She, in the way she thought about her work, she didn't want an explanation for her work. She didn't want it pinned down. She didn't want ideas. And so uh, being able to say uh, definitively that she was into the practice would give a kind of easy explanation. And so by, by being apart from it, it reinforces the way that she wanted her work seen as well. Absolutely. You know, the, the thing that she was, one of the things that she was um, almost completely consistent, I will say completely consistent about and, and, and really committed to, was um, to move the experience of art, the practice of art making away from intellectualism. So, uh, you know, this, of course, has put me in a funny position as a as her biographer and, and as an art critic. Um, she was pretty hostile um, in her, you know, sort of tolerant and magnanimous way to folks like me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, I think it would not have been possible for lots of reasons um, for me to write the book when she was alive. Um, she actually was pretty active in uh, kind of disrupting her own career, even though she was enormously ambitious for her work. She really wanted her work to be seen. It wasn't enough to make it, you know. She wasn't somebody who believed that she could live her life in isolation, um, painting away in a studio, you know, that would be increasingly full of work that uh, was only witnessed by her. She she wanted her work to be out in the public eye, um, she had no hesitation about going after the most powerful galleries, that gallery that she um, believed might support her work. But she kind of put the kibosh on um, a couple of museum exhibitions by refusing uh, the publications of catalogs. She didn't want anyone to say anything about her life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. She didn't want anyone really to um, come up with ideas framing her work. And um, that's I it. Think that's it. Yeah, to leave it without labels, to leave it open-ended and meaning for people to just experience it. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I think it's what. Well, I remember um, a, a biography movie that came out, um, and I saw it at Film Forum. I think in a double feature with um, Kiki Smith movie, something like that. Mm-hmm. It had to be mid two thousands. I don't know if you remember that film. Yeah, yeah. Um, With her back to the world, Mary Lance. It's a beautiful documentary made late in in Martin's life. And I think that uh, Mary Lance and uh, and Martin had a a pretty deep sympathy. And um, part of that stems from the fact that they were both in New Mexico. She seems very open in the film. Yeah. Uh, and the the thing that shocked me uh, in that uh, movie was the way she she was saying things that were really very similar to, to deep Buddhist teachings, mm-hmm. uh, but saying them so offhand and so from her own experience, you know. So it so mm-hmm. the thoughts had really originated with her quiet and her patience and awaiting images to arise and not working until the image arises. This sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And also. Uh, in there, I don't know if you remember the lines, and she was talking about giving up beliefs, and that was really, for me, some strong uh, reaction as well. And she'd said uh, the theory of evolution, she has to give that up as an idea. Atom- mm-hmm. Atomic theory, she had to give up. I couldn't. <laughs> how could you yeah. give that up? But then when you get back to it and sit and think about it a while, you can realize, yeah, that's an idea. There's an idea there, really. Yeah. I mean, that was something she shared to some extent with Ad Reinhardt, with whom she was very close when she was living in the Coentis Slip community in New York, this um, sort of renunciation. He was, um, he was of course, 
a little bit more strict about it than she was. And there was certainly as much embrace in her work as there was renunciation. But yes, letting go, letting go of vanity above all else, but um, letting go of ideas that tie you to pride, to pride in, um, you know, mental prowess, to pride in your place in art history. Yeah, I think when you look at her work with that sense of that sense of giving up and the fact that she seems to have gone much more deeply into some movement uh, beyond ideas, it really uh, draws you into the work. It creates that, again, that you get into a meditative state and it almost requires a meditative state. So it's, it always circles back to me to that mindfulness that's in there, but without being you know, instructive or or descriptive of that process. And it requires the same mindful state of the viewer as the one that she entered into when she worked, um, that it requires that you be physically present in front of her work um, and um, not coincidentally that y- you virtually can't photograph it. Um, that is another thing that she shared with Reinhardt. It's very difficult, of course, to take yeah, photographs exactly. to tell you anything about, about Reinhardt's, especially his later dark works. And um, hers are so radiant. They're so full of light. Um, but they also completely fall apart in photographs, uh, which is, you know, I think a hallmark. It's almost a way of judging the success of that kind of abstract work, that yes. kind of, you know, phenomenologically based um, experiential. Yeah, I so completely agree. And and another concept comes up, which is presence. You know, the pieces, the pieces have presence and they require presence. And mm-hmm. that's kind of an incredible thing for, for an object in this day and age when we're sending pictures and buying and selling artwork on Instagram and that kind of thing. Yep. That, uh, that um, a, piece, a piece would be pre- have to be present <laughs> in your space. And uh, that, again, is a, is a strong uh, uh, concept uh, in meditation circles is just cultivating presence and, and, uh, and uh, being present, learning to be and- present. Yeah, sensitivity and awareness. I was struck when I was reading your book about um, the length of some of the exercises. They're short, right? I mean, exactly. I, I have read the whole thing. So especially the ones in the beginning um, seem some of them to be quite short. And there's this you know, funny quote of Agnes um, that, that I think has some um, currency, which is, you know, she always insisted that you take some time and, um, you know, sort of plant yourself in front of her paintings one at a time. And so somebody asked her, well, you know, how long should we, should we spend? And she said, Oh, you know, about a minute. (laughs) And the, you know, the questioner said a minute. (laughs) She said, well, you know, a minute can be a really long time. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I, I like to say uh, when you're when you're dealing with the timeless, you know, even a short bit is okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like once you've dropped into it, yeah, a minute can be forever, right? Right, and you know, if you if you actually clock the um, people moving through most museums, um, especially if they're passing through a room of big abstract painting, they're not spending a minute in front of each painting by a long shot. That's they're true. just you know, unless they're you know taking and retaking a selfie in front of it. Uh, so Yeah, I wonder about that in our day and age, like in that short attention span time, that work that demands more time. It's, yeah. uh, and, and people would argue that a work of art should um, uh, speak for itself, that you shouldn't have to know anything about it. But I would argue otherwise, and I would say knowing more and knowing how to approach it and knowing something about the artist really deepens the experience of looking at work. I think that's true too. Yeah. Obviously, I've got something at stake in that. Too. <laughs> Me too, but <laughs> I do think it's true. I want to um, jump in now uh, to uh, this concept of innocence because that's mm-hmm. that's for me a, turned out to be a kind of a central concept in the book, and also a surprising. Uh, the leap that took place between her sort of re- realization of uh, the idea of innocence as a grid. And I wonder if you have any th- thoughts about that. I have some, and and just kind of go back and forth if we can about uh, her relationship to innocence. 
Um, sure, it's a really rich subject, and I am eager to hear your thoughts. It, I think it has a number of meanings um, for Martin, both in her work and um, in her thinking her life. Um, she was very attracted, I'll start with the simplest and most, in some ways, superficial. She was really attracted to children. She trained to be a teacher. She worked as a teacher um, for many years in early adulthood, um, teaching little kids, um, teaching in one-room schoolhouses. And um, she felt there was something um, kind of transcendentally blessed about that state, uh, you know, which she could be both deeply kind of uh, romantic about and also very clear-eyed. And she, you know, she didn't have the easiest childhood and she knew what it was like to work with difficult children. But that state of being free of influence, of um, ideas, as we've already talked about, of just being in the world um, was extremely important uh, to yes. the way she um, the way she thought about her work. Once she had developed her mature vocabulary, I mean, you know, it's also true that she spent twenty years working as a full grown adult. I mean, I'm not starting from when she was a child um, making work that she did her best to destroy, um, starting with um, pretty conventional representational work and moving through the whole range of early modernist um, idioms before she arrived at abstraction. So her innocence was very, as an artist, was, you know, very hard won. She's, she wasn't herself, uh, you know, any kind of self-taught, um, unaware artist. And she remained in touch with what was going on in the art world. She certainly um, became a little unwillingly part of the minimalist um, cohort, and um, she followed what the land artists, the earthwork artists were doing and so on. So um, there is that understanding that she had of innocence, that kind of deliberate turning away from what was... Um, kind of this, the style that was reigning at the time. Um, and she also, I think this is striking and um, kind of funny. She sometimes um, had trouble with spelling. She misspelled some things. And one of the ways that she sometimes wrote innocence when <clears throat> she was, um, all of her writing was done longhand, was in no sense, uh, you know, so it, it would end with an S rather than a, See, so I think, you know, she was pulling away even with that, I think, possible wordplay um, from the idea that there is some kind of rationality that we're seeking in artwork. Um, that was one thing that really bugged her about being associated with the minimalists. That, that, you know, there was nothing about her work that she believed was invested in any kind of rational thought. Yeah, I love that. I love that misspelling and that you describe that in the book. And yeah, in no sense. So the reception in some ways of the transmission of the painting is not in our senses. It's somewhere deep down in our mind and yep. in no sense in that way. And not in no sense, like there's nothing sensible. There's no rational explanation for the work. Right. And I, I, I just love that it turns so quickly and easily on that and that that word was so key early on in her work, which she says... She says, uh, I was thinking of innocence and the image was a grid. That was it. I thought, my God, am I supposed to paint that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it says so much about her process just in that one, oh, little, one little part. That's such a key line for me. And, uh, and to, and, but I just keep uh, sitting with uh, innocence and thinking of innocence and seeing when the image of the grid arises and how the image of the grid could arise from uh, that thought. And I, uh, one thing I thought was that... Um, the regularity of the grid uh, mm -hmm. is uncorrupted, and one sense of innocence is uncorrupted. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, the grid, in a way, it, it doesn't speak about anything really, but its regularity. And, it, and so, it's innocent in that way of trying to be anything else. <laughs> it's not, it's not a landscape. It's not a, any kind of picture, mm -hmm. but it's this regularity. And also, I, I thought also the regularity in the surfaces and the restraint in her color at that time. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. was also kind of innocent. It wasn't she wasn't going out and being bold and uh, but a much more kind of re- reserved. Um, yeah, and uh, and also uh, one sense of innocence is harmless. And and in a way, the pictures are they're they're kind of benign. <laughs> they 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 require you to come to them. They don't jump out into your space or try to shock you or anything. I think, and I so I seem as innocent in that way. Yeah, I think that's all. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that's all very beautifully put. I think that really captures um, a lot about her understanding of innocence. You know, I suppose I don't I don't know whether you want to um, approach this from a different angle, but I I suppose we can also talk about our understanding of innocence in um, relationship to some of what she herself called, uh, you know, the the demon she struggled with. Yes. Yes. Including uh, the voices she heard. And, uh, you know, it's so dangerous to kind of. imagine yourself inside anyone else's head, you know, especially someone who's struggling with any kind of significant mental illness, which she did. Um, and, and sometimes, of course, it, it really took over and she couldn't work. Um, I think even when she was working, she sometimes heard um, command voices that were intrusive and noisy. And I think that the grid for her um, was in some measure a meditative device, um, a way mm. of channeling um, disorganized thoughts into an order that was helpful, you know, yeah. an order that was. Um, I think it's true. Nourishing internally. Yeah, in in uh, in my book, I I have a chapter on systematic drawing, and I talk about mm-hmm. uh, repetitive drawing as a kind of mantra practice where you can yeah. draw something over and over. And I think in some ways, drawing that grid and that attention to detail was in was a kind of a uh, meditative practice, just just Absolutely. just to focus and be so precise. Absolutely. You know, one of the one of the ideas I became interested in, I'm not sure I was able or am able to. Um, develop it at, at any length is, um, you know, kind of a history of automatism mm. as, um, uh, as a drawing technique. And that we've, we've had these very conventional ideas of what automatism looks like. And, you know, we basically think it looks like Jackson Pollock, who's, you know, someone Agnes was interested in. They were kind of of the same generation, um, born the same year. But, it's my experience, just absolutely anecdotal. You know, this would be like me and my friends. Um, right. That when you know, when someone sits down and doodles, you know, yeah. more or less unconsciously, it's as likely to be repetitive parallel lines as it is to be a big cursive moving, right. and that um, that that's that can be what automatism looks like. It can oh, no look question. Like a grid. No question. As easily as it can look like you know, I, I, swirling I, thought. I'm not trying to plug my own things, but uh, <laughs> my that that was my original uh, idea in doing my drawings was to try to write uh, artificial ah, intelligence yeah. uh, software, and so I just right. studied my own uh, drawing, my own improvisational drawing. That's been tw- 20 years practice, and it yeah. takes every form. In the beginning, it was grids because I was thinking about computers and pixels and and mm-hmm. and there were grids, and then it loosened yeah. and it loosened, and I became more and more accepting of what came up. And yes, I think it can take figurative forms and all sorts of forms. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, there's such a clear overlap. I hadn't quite put that together between um, the way your thinking has developed and and the way I was thinking about Martin's development. Yeah, and I can't say that seeing that uh, film early on didn't uh, didn't have a significant influence because she was really able to completely let go into accepting what came up. And the more and more that I completely let go, and what I found, the reason basically I got into mindfulness practice was because it was a kind of cross-training uh, mm-hmm. by strengthening uh, uh, concentration and uh, mindful awareness. Uh, I'm able to more let go. I'm able to l- less interfere with what's coming up when I'm drawing. 
Mm-hmm. And I and I realized that even from what she said and from my own practice, that the more I'm able to just let the drawing emerge and and the inner critic goes away and the judgment goes away and the thoughts about where it'll go go, go away and just uh, allowing it have made more richer and more interesting works. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. so I have a great trust in that process now. You gave a talk at the Tate Museum in London, mm-hmm. yep. uh, and that's on YouTube for anyone who wants to see it. It's about an hour long, uh, and it's wonderful summary of the book and some other thoughts about uh, Agnes Martin. And there's some questions at the end about it, and you um, address them, and you really show that her mental illness, which could be factored, I think, more into uh, an influence, you really show that it's really not a driver or a subject of yeah. the work, and I think it's really important. Yeah, I do too. Uh, you know, for a long time, it was a very tightly kept secret about um, about Martin. Um, and of course, uh, you know, the, the people who knew her best um, were well aware of it. I think that speaks to um, both her feelings about exposing personal information and also uh, to her generation um, and yeah, exactly. Um, the culture of the time. Yeah. So, so much has changed in the way we think about mental illness and um, and the way it's treated. Um, m- most of which I think has um, been an enormous improvement. Uh, you know, this, the stigma that was attached to it then um, isn't, uh, I don't think, is in force as much today, which is great. Yes, it is. It's great. It's true. Yeah, to, to circle back to innocence, I would say that that process of allowing, that process of uh, in, uh, automatism or improvisation uh, drawing ha- is a certain kind of innocence to be open to what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and I also think about, did I, did I read it right or wrong? In her very early years, she was promiscuous. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, stay tuned. There's... Uh... <laughs> There's actually new material that's come out since I wrote my book, and there are a couple of, uh, there's an, a new film, Martin Before the Grid, and there is a new biography in the works. And, oh, wow. uh, you know, I think she had a pretty unruly adolescence, um, which makes her, um, you know, sort of completely normal. Right. And, um, yeah, but, you know, I think she was always, uh, really bold. She, you know, she was courageous in her work. She was courageous in her life. And she experimented with a lot of stuff that um, others of her generation might not have. Um, And she had, I would say, several, uh, maybe many uh, romantic relationships with, um, with women, and I think with men as well. some of this is simply hearsay. Some of this is people kind of coming out of the woodworks and providing pretty, you know, strong evidence of these relationships. I stayed away from it in writing about her, um, partly because um, I, you know, I, I couldn't be sure enough. Um, she did, you know, at, at one point report her own promiscuity in, in high school, but um, also because I think felt unlike the question of her internal mental state that she really um, kept it out of her work and it it it, it doesn't help us understand it in oh. any way I, I I was thinking of the sense of a uh, uh, loss of innocence and 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 uh, she was always crossing these boundaries and trying things and traveling by herself and living alone and, uh, I see. Yeah. And the relation, uh-huh. the relationship of that to sort of an innocent life or a, or a not guilty life, or maybe it was a, the grid again. I think in some ways was a respite. It was a it was a it was a very stable place to be. So interesting, the idea that that turbulent, erotic life that she had as a as a younger woman um, and teenager was another thing that she was seeking to get past to return to some state of innocence. Um, you know, I, I think that's, that's probably right. I, I, that makes perfect sense to me that, um, that she experienced romantic attachment as well as, you know, erotic behavior as unwelcome, you know, as a kind of, I guess in, you know, in, in a Buddhist sense, is a kind of attachment that she didn't want. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think and it all shows uh, uh, when she's able to let it go. And I think, I mean, I just, I think that the fact that she was so rigorous in the making and that she was such a good editor of her own work and that, that she really had an idea of what that painting had to convey more than just a visual appearance, that it really had a sense of sense of presence that had to come through. And I think it is this kind of deep piece that was she was really working toward and maybe uh, in reaction to other parts of her life. I mean, she was really, in certain ways, very repressed, I think, uh, the things that she was hiding and, and the difficulties that she had to overcome from, mm-hmm. from her childhood. You, just, you talk about how her line is like writing, and I'd like to talk about that, that difference between sort of contouring and rendering and writing in the in the way that she put her lines down? I, you know, I did get in, interested, and in that's what that chapter, Lines of Thought, um, is meant to, um, is meant to clarify. I, I got interested in the relationship between the writing hand and the drawing hand, and I felt that there was a negotiation and a, a kind of integration of the two in her development of the grid. You know, I thought it was important that the grid was penciled, usually, not always. You know, there are some exceptions, um, which kind of skewer in my argument, but. Um, but that she often had a pencil in her hand, that the pencil to me seems to have been a place of comfort for her, that there are a lot of penciled calculations, mm. um, you know, which we've seen uh, for coming up with the distribution of lines across the surface of a canvas, you know, that she had these fixed ideas about what the canvas size should be, six feet square, and, you know, and, and that that um, calculating line, the drawing line, and the line of writing, you know, there were times when she wrote, as I, you know, as I already said, she wrote pretty abundantly, um, that, you know, it, it's all a kind of, there's a kind of unspooling in each one of those um, practices that you feel in the work. I mean, of course, in some ways, you read the work, um, you get very, I think every viewer who really engages with her work um, is drawn very close to it uh, to, you know, get a sense of of her presence, of her hand, of yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the fluctuations in um, the washes of paint in the, you know, in the work from the late 70s and, and onward, um, and even in earlier work, you know, the variations in the pressure of the line. And um, yeah, I think that's very beautiful what you're saying, which is, which is that by limiting the variations, it makes us more sensitive to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that we come in closer. Yeah. So uh, at one point I tried to change the way I was drawing from rendering to something else. And I came up with this idea of the diagrammatic space that the lines would be kind of diagrammatic and it, and, mm-hmm. it, and, it, and in making the lines a certain way with the ruler uh, and very precisely, I think that she pushes it away clearly visually away from trying to read it as anything, but these sort of diagrammatic marks. And uh, I just find that really interesting. It's such an, it is such an interesting relationship. I mean, it, you know, another one of the artists that she was very close with when she was in New York was Ellsworth Kelly. And I think they shared um, the same struggle to get the depiction of the natural world out of their work yeah. while yeah. being so deeply involved with it. And of course, Kelly allowed himself throughout, really, um, to do those exquisite line drawings of, um, you know, flowers and other vegetation. Right, right. And until that famous last drawing, that very dramatic yes. last drawing when she drew the potted plant, um, Agnes also, you know, even more than Kelly you know, made absolutely sure that no one would think of landscape when, when they were looking at her work or anything natural. But of course everyone did. It's there. You can't. Right. Well, right. It's, you know, it's beautiful that way. But I think that's the beauty of it is that you can't uh, ever get yourself out of your painting. As, right. as, as much as you tried to make a completely objective painting, it's Agnes Martin's painting. <laughs> And her world, you know, and the, the world, the landscape of her childhood and the landscape that she chose for her adulthood, um, which are so similar in, in um, so many ways, that it's her. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah, the prairie and the desert and the open skies yep. and the flat colors. I, I agree. And there's something also about how you read uh, 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 text and how you read a pictorial image and how you read a map. And they're all sort of different mental mm -hmm. states. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, the paintings play really nicely amongst those. Yeah, that's it's interesting. It, it you know it 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 makes me think of that the the beautiful flatbed picture plane essay that Leo Steinberg wrote in the early nineteen seventies. Um, you know that sort of it it allows for reorientation of the image surface in space. And I think in some ways, I mean, of course, she was painting easel paintings and you know, they're meant to be confronted head on, but there is a sense in which it's, you know, it's an experience that's immersive and it could, it, it could sort of extend forward in the way that a landscape beneath your feet does. Yes. Or, or looking down at a paper on a pay, a pay, yes. piece of paper on a desk or something. Could right. be. Yeah. I love that. The reorientation of the picture plane is a great, is a great idea. A great thought about it because it they they seem to move around in space as you look at them. They yeah. kind of float there. Yeah, as a diagram does, you know. Yeah, and I think I think also the, these days the cyberspace. You know, we see these charts and diagrams on screens and things. Yeah. What is the what is that as a drawing? These lines they're mapping statistics or they're mapping numbers. And she was she was in some way mapping these lines of this grid or mapping the image that she had had in her mind onto this bigger space. Or, mm -hmm. or remapping and the extensive calculations she did to get the, and I'm not even quite sure I understand all that, like what the numbers involved were. Do you think she had some sort of uh, uh, size? Well, I, I guess she standardized her size at six feet. Is that right? Six feet square canvas? Yeah, until um, the last, roughly the last decade when she cut it down to five feet because she didn't work with assistants and she was no longer able to manage six foot canvas so, uh, you so, know, so you th do you think she just said it there's there's five lines spaced a certain amount and she had to measure all that out was that was that what the calculations were about well her explanation had to do you know with her uh kind of idiosyncratic notion of what inspiration is and uh, you know she talked about seeing the paintings that she would execute in her mind's eye with a great degree of precision. So she would wait. Sometimes she had to wait for some time before the vision of the painting came to her. And, um, and then she would go about realizing it. And the calculations were about translating it from the small size that she had seen in her mind to six foot square. So she knew how many, you know, stripes or right. Lines in the grid were supposed to be there, and she had to, you know, and she knew what the rhythm of them was. Um, when in the later work there were um, bands of different widths and in different sort of rhythmic relationships, um, but she didn't know how to fit that exactly onto the canvas mm -hmm. without without doing the math. Yeah, I find that so interesting that she wouldn't go up and just kind of say here and here because she's already visualizing the piece, but it was but it was turned into the numbers and then measured out. But I, I think that transition's really interesting. That that it, that at some point it's it's calculated. Yeah, yeah. I you know I don't. I mean now that I'm saying this, I'm thinking. Has, you know, did anyone actually witness her make that you know make that series of translations? I mean, the the pages of calculation are so chaotic, and, and the the paintings are so clear. I wonder but, if it, anyone went back and tried to match a page of calculations yeah. to a particular painting and see if it, if she actually how precise it was when it finally got down. Such a good question. I, I I'm sure there's someone who knows the answer, but I don't. Um, okay, so uh, I want to turn a little bit. Uh, this is, believe me, I could go endlessly on this chapter. There's so many points here and so many crossovers with uh, meditation and stuff. But I would like to know really a little bit more about um, uh, you you and your process in the writing of the book and sort mm -hmm. of what it was like to be the biographer of Agnes Martin, you know, how the deep study of her career changed your outlook and, and if you've had to consider, you know, sort of your own positions differently. Um, oh, this could be a big subject too. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, there are a lot of um, pragmatic issues involved. I had been interested in her work since I was in college, which is a while ago, and um, I wrote about it then. Uh, and, you know, so, of course, for me, it partly involved kind of looking back at the arc of my thinking about abstraction, how it was taught to me um, when I was in school and um, how different our understanding of all of that is now, how um, really rigid and censorious um, a lot of the teaching around, you know, what was essentially Greenbergian formalism was. You don't allow any um, anything personal, really, into um, a consideration of the work. And, mm. you know, of course, Agnes was no Greenbergian, but in some ways she endorsed that. So yes. I had to, you know, I had to get Agnes's um, g both generous and kind of inhibiting um, ideas out of my mind and um, negotiate which wasn't easy. Um, the belief I really had that there were things about her life that were meaningful and, and helpful in looking at her work and, uh, you know, a, a kind of wish not to violate her privacy, uh, you know, which a lot of uh, people who were close to her were also pretty concerned about. Uh, so mm. uh, I'm not sure I, you know, I'm, I managed to thread that needle perfectly. Um, but I did my best. Well, that you, was you're you're definitely involved in the book. And I really like that, uh, that um, recognition of the uh, mm -hmm. sort of impersonal in the Greenbergian sense and how um, really think, thinking today, I'd say postmodern, but even beyond multicultural thinking, it, it recognizes that the author is not separate from the work and and mm -hmm. our, our own opinions, whether we express them outwardly or just the fact that we're the people in this part of the world writing a book about this person, we're implicated in that. So so I think that's really interesting. And I really, I, I'm, I look... I love the footnotes of this book, and it was like almost <laughs> like a treasure hunt <laughs> because I read it on a Kindle, you know, and a, 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 I read it on my iPhone actually, uh, and um, you could click on the little uh, footnote number, and they would pop up. And sometimes it would just be, you know, Ibid or you know, just a reference. <laughs> and sometimes there would be a little paragraph there, and it was always very interesting uh, because I knew that you had something to say that you sort of took out of the context of the. <laughs> main part of the book and sort of st stuck in there. And there's one section when um, you're talking about um, Gertrude Stein and how uh, uh, Agnes Martin put Gertrude Stein quote in her 1959 December exhibition catalog. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, and they're ta and talking about those cow paintings. Mm -hmm. You stick in a footnote where you're talking about Jonathan Katz writing about the yeah. uh, cow painting and and he uh, is also talking about he believes that they refer to the Zen ox herding pictures, which are really, really important pictures for me. And mm -hmm. I really enjoyed uh, looking, uh, see seeing that, that she had at least some point, some relationship to that and the, and the uh, repeated motif of the cow. And then he also compares it to all say he concludes, quote, strange as it may sound in Martin's own pictorial private language, Zen meditation and lesbian orgasm merge under the sign cow as different facets of a similar transcendent impulse and then you add uh the claim strains credibility or at least available evidence <laughs> <laughs> and i just it's a little gem i think down in the bottom of footnote 79 that you that you are willing to go in and and call call it for what it is in some cases but i, yeah. I think all, all throughout you you try to take down the common uh, myths and beliefs about her work and try to show the other side and i appreciate that a lot about the book and you. Uh, also, you talk about a letter that you wrote, I think you just mentioned, when you were a grad, grad student. I was an undergraduate. An undergraduate, and you were okay. studying her work. And she, uh, and then you, uh, in one of the later chapters, you go into some detail about the uh, receiving the letter and reading the letter. And it was postmarked, uh, I guess, in Albuquerque, which is a long way away from where she was living, and how much yeah. um, time it must have taken her to, one, for one, write it and for another to get it to you. 
uh, and I, I love that story, and I love that's your, the kind of a deep involvement, a personal involvement in there, in the story. And uh, I think it's really interesting that um, that the the letter is really precise, I think, and really points out in a nice way her, you know, summarizes her philosophy, summarizes her thoughts about making work and getting away from ideas and getting away from academics and just trusting your feelings. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that she wrote that at that time. I guess she was living on the Mesa. She was living like six yeah, six miles in, mm-hmm. in a in a very sparse conditions, not not with any by her own choice really, but but few luxuries, so she could really focus on the painting. And at that time, that letter came through, and uh, and uh, and it was very clear. And somehow that uh, letter written that day on that mesa, it was a little missive. I think of it like a little signal, you know, that went out and went into your hands. And now all all this time later, it's now it's in this publication, and now that that mm-hmm. message is transmitting out to everyone. And I, I like the idea that she was so that 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 little bit of concentration from that very special place was like now transmitted out to such a large audience. Yeah, oh, that's that's very sweet. That's such a that's such a great way to think about it. it was, yeah, it was almost you know. like a seed you had to carry forward then, and it became this part of this biography and part of the story of it. It did. Of all the things that I managed to lose over the course of those forty odd years, um, that's one thing I managed to hold on to. So, um, yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, it, it this would be true of. Um, anyone in that position, you know, to look back on what I made of that letter when I got it. And um, honestly, how little thought I gave to where it was coming from, you know, in in my mind, regardless of where she was living, and I knew very little about the conditions. um, She was a famous artist. (laughs) All right. I was, you know, I was in awe of her. And um, that prevented me from at the time, um, from really trying to imagine, to sympathize with um, what she was up to, what she was like, Mm -hmm. um, what she um, hoped to achieve. And, um, you know, of course, also writing in the 21st century, um, it's, you know, I think a lot of writers of my generation um, have come a little slow to the understanding that um, speaking in the first person is actually just a form of honesty. You know, we all know there's a writer back there somewhere and it's, um, it's not modesty to pretend otherwise. It's, you know, it's sort of falsehood to pretend otherwise we should um, own up to our specificity without making that a front and center aspect of our writing. Um, but yeah, that was, that was funny for me putting myself in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so true. And what you're saying and what I try to teach people when they're drawing is don't, don't deny that that's the way you draw, that that's you, that you're seeing there. Any, any line you make, even if it's for five minutes of just scribbling, that's, that's the scribble you made and it will be different than everybody else's scribble. And the more we can be mindful of what we're drawing and, and responsive to what, uh, appears, you know, we can know ourselves better. Yeah, you can see what our tendencies are because some people will make repeated forms and some people will make loopy forms, and it has something to do with who they are. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I I've been teaching writing, <clears throat> which is sort of still new for me. Um, for a long time, I just taught sort of issues in art, um, contemporary art classes, mostly uh, to studio art students. But I've been teaching, um, in a graduate program for um, students who want to be writers. And uh, so the question sometimes comes up, you know, what's the best way for me to develop my voice? And, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, yeah, I what think, do you say? <laughs> and, well, you know, I, I puzzled over it. Uh, it just, it, it seems such an odd question, sort of putting the cart before the horse. Um, I mean, I think what you have to do is, really avoid thinking about your voice, think about what it is you want to say, and you can't help but say it in a way that only you could, Um, which is not to say that we don't all kind of absorb the influence of whatever we've read last or whatever we like best, and that our so-called writing voices don't somehow change. But I think of 
a voice, and I'm sure this is the same in drawing, is the thing you can't help but have. Yeah. You don't have to look for it. It's just the way you write. And if you clear away, you know, the jargon and the underbrush and the, you know, aspirational gobbledygook. Yeah, now you're um, sounding like Agnes Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you get get out of your own way and uh, let it let it emerge, right? Yeah. But yeah. what what if students say to you, "I don't know what I have to say. How do I find out what I have to say?" You know, they don't very much. I mean, I see that that, that is a problem. You know, it, it and it remains a problem. The what and um, that's the pursuit. Yeah. You know, it's it's not like what vocabulary or what. Um, what stylistic tics um, will most become me, but uh, what is it that seems most important to me now? And that is uh, such a challenging question for anyone. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you have any exercises you give them to try to work through, to try to discover that? You know, I do actually occasionally have them write, write like you're you know, Robert Smithson or write like your Jenny Holzer or, you know, just right. trying out the voices of various artists who write. Um, uh, and also other kinds of sort of users like finger exercises, cut it down, you know, write it 500 words and then make it 300 words or edit each other's, you know, all those yeah, kinds yeah. of those are write wonderful. it and then lop off the first sentence, you know, because the first sentence is, you know, often this sort of, um, very labored over moment that right. you, know, you become very attached to, even when it has absolutely no relationship to what follows. And it, it often, you know, improves a piece of writing. I still do this with my own writing to just get to the end and then cut off the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Right. When, when I wrote uh, that book, my, uh, my uh, syndrome was uh, uh, burying the lead. <laughs> my my <laughs> my editor always took the last thing I wrote and stuck it at the beginning. Somehow I was always saving, building up to it. You know, you tell it right away at the beginning. So I flipped around at almost every paragraph, and it yeah. was better. It was better writing for it. That's right. Yeah, that's that. I have uh, lately. I've written a, a few times for the New York Times, and of course, they're very big on this. Say everything that you want to say in the first paragraph. And I thought, well, why would anyone read further? <laughs> but it, it is good advice. This yeah. day and age, maybe they don't. <laughs> I just like to go back to this idea of the source of creativity, which is mm -hmm. which is really the the depth of this podcast, and where where I think uh, contemplative studies and and creative work sort of all point back to. We can certainly see it in Agnes Martin's work, and I just wonder uh, your thoughts on where those ideas come from. Where does what is this source of creativity for Agnes Martin? Or just generally speaking, uh, either both. <laughs> yeah, um, for me, uh, <laughs> for me, it, at times it's been her, uh, oh, and right. you know, I think it would be hard to um, get around her own descriptions of of where creativity came from. You know, her disc her discussions of inspiration, but I think it would also probably, in some measure, be wrong to. Um, accept that as the beginning and the end. I think creativity came from everything that she was, from her love of um, being out in the light, in the wind, in these very radiant landscapes that were um, so important to her throughout her life. I think it came from her interest in various kinds of um, both mystical and practical spiritual disciplines. Um, I think it came from being beset by transcendent, ecstatic, even terrifying sometimes um, internal experiences that probably on some level she um, adored and was terrified by and um, oppressed by. And I think part of it came from the art she cared about and looked at, uh, you know, from being drawn to expressing herself visually, which is, you mm. know, mm. a particular orientation. 
Yeah, that's beautiful and beautifully said. Thank you so much. And thank you for talking with me today. It was just it was a joy. I would go on and on. I would go hours, but I'm going to I'm going to let it go at this and uh, maybe um reconnect at some point and uh I wonder if you have any do you have any um thing coming up that you want to mention or a website or a URL or anything that you'd like to put out there? I don't have a website and um I do have a book in the works, but it's a little too soon to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> Look, <laughs> a surprise announcement coming soon from Nancy Prinstensall. Yes. <laughs> and please go go and get the Agnes Martin book. Agnes Martin, Her Life and Art, it's everywhere. It's on Amazon. It's a big seller. And it's really, it's a page turner for a bio. I think it was really a beautiful read and goes deeply into creativity and deeply into her life. So it's just a joy to read. So thank, thank you, you again, so Nancy, <laughs> for being here. Thank you. Yeah. It really, that's a pleasure. So what a joy to be able to speak with someone who has such a depth of knowledge in a subject I'm so very interested in, as crazy as technology and the world are today. It's really connecting us in ways we can't even understand. And that's what's keeping me on the sunny side of the street. Thank you all for listening making it this far. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I hope you'll go see some Agnes Martin paintings and um, I hope you'll read Nancy's book. I've got plenty of uh, interviews coming up, more creative contemplatives. But if you have some ideas about who you'd like to hear, please send them to me. You can find me at drawingyourownpath.com. There's a link there for an email. I'm also on Facebook at uh, in our closed group, Drawing Your Own Path, which you're welcome to join. So I hope to hear some feedback. Hope you enjoyed the show, and uh, we'll see you next time on Drawing Your Own Path.